I'm David Flint, and this is the programme Save the Nation on the platform ATH-TV, which is a new and exciting platform. The subject today is a very interesting subject. Australia, two nations. And when you hear that, two nations, the, those historically inclined among you will remember that was the title or the subtitle of the book by the great British Prime Minister who uh, decided that uh, he would write a book, Sybil, the Two Nations, and a uh, quite magnificent book indeed. Uh, that was Benjamin Disraeli, of course. My guest today is Rick Brown, who's the director of CPI Strategic, and he's a strategy and policy advisor, particularly in relation to government matters. He was the director of an important think tank in Australia, the Council of National Interest. But more importantly, from my personal point of view, and those of my colleagues, in 1999, he became the Victorian director of the No Republic campaign. That was the campaign in the referendum to score a no victory. And uh, in that role, he firstly edited the No Case Papers, a copy of which I have here, the No Case Papers, which was a, contained papers by an assembly of quite extraordinarily gifted people, Phil Cleary, Bob Ellicott QC, Professor David Flint, uh, the, the former Governor-General Bill Hayden, Hayden and Labour leader, Peter Reith, Sir David Smith, uh, and numerous others. A quite remarkable book, and it brought together all sorts of interesting views in relation to the campaign. It was only one of several books that Australians for Constitutional Monarchy presided over, and uh, there Rick was the editor. But perhaps even more importantly, he produced a slogan which the Republicans later reported was something which really killed their campaign. It was the most damaging part of our campaign against theirs, and that was vote no to the politician's republic. And Rick devised that term, the politician's republic. And it fitted in very well with ACM because the ACM charter said that some of us consider Australia already to be a republic, that is, a crowned republic. So that was his second thing. Then he, he devised the strategy for winning the state. The state which we thought was the one most likely to be lost, the hardest one to win. He devised the strategy for that. He also devised the, the working strategy to work with the real Republicans. Those were the Republicans who were opposed to the model and joined the no case. And that was very important. And uh, at the very core, he was one of the group of key people who ensured the victory, leading an enormous army of volunteers, the foot soldiers, about 60,000 people all working together, pulling together, who effectively won the no vote in the 1999 campaign against most of the politicians, certainly most of them, probably 75 to 80 percent, very few of them, even constitutional monarchists putting their head over the parapet to support the no case, and uh, also defeated most of the mainstream media 
Very few people in the mainstream media, apart from Alan Jones, came out in favour of the No case. So it was a, a wonderful thing. And Rick has done other work, which is worth referring to, in particular, I think it was in 2015, he produced a paper which warned the authorities, the government and big business, not to enter into a free trade agreement with the Chinese communists, unless there were certain guarantees which were never forthcoming, probably not even considered in the negotiations to get that free trade agreement. And that's blown up in the face of the politicians and those in business who thought that a free trade agreement would be a wonderful thing with uh, a party that doesn't honour its agreements. So we have really a remarkable person today. And he's written an essay, an essay which I think will be very important. It's on politics in the 21st century. And uh, it's Australia, two nations. Australia, two nations. And it's published by the IPA, but it's also available on Rick's website. Now, if I could begin my questioning on this, Rick, you begin it by saying in 1999, Australia conducted the largest uh, taxpayer-funded focus group in our history, and that was sure. the referendum. Why did you refer to it that way? Uh, it, uh, David, uh, that referendum was certainly one of, I think, less than a handful of referenda in which neither of the major political parties has taken a formal position. So the psychological effect of that was that nobody went into the into the ballot box uh, feeling an obligation to their party to vote in a certain way. That's not to say that, uh, that the majority of supporters of different parties didn't have views. I mean, the, ma the majority of supporters of Labor, for example, uh, uh, supported then, and I imagine still support uh, some form of republic. The uh, majority of the grassroots nationals uh, oppose uh, a republic. And uh, as we saw, what we see now from the Liberals is what we saw in 2004, and that is they're just all over the shop. Um, and that's, that's how it was in 2004. Rick, you but, made a very uh, important uh, point about the results, did you not? About uh, where people lived seemed to be very important. Uh, that's that's the outcome of it, and the uh, it really it it really underpinned the strategy that the no case took in. Uh, fundamentally, it, it was patently obvious um, that. The advocates for uh, for yes cases of various sorts predominantly lived in in, in, in a metropolitan suburbs, and if one looked at uh, most of the public advocates, that's where they lived. Yeah, there were very few people from Penrith out giving t TV interviews supporting a republic, yeah, or Lithgow or whatever. And the Melbourne no, nobody from Dandenong was out there doing it. Um, it was all the inner suburbs, you know, Wentworth, uh, in North, North Sydney, uh, Hawthorne, Kew, Camberwell, uh, Indrapilly, and so it goes on. 
Um, and then that was actually reflected in the results. Now, part of the reason for that was that because it was clear that the bulk of the dedicated support came from the inner suburbs, it was quite clear uh, from the point of view of a no case that uh, it was much better to focus on the outer suburbs in, in order in order to uh, in order to get people to vote no, vote no. And the simple reason for that was it wasn't that the, the outer suburbs is pro-constitutional monarchy or whatever. Um, there, there are two things. Um, first of all, from their point of view, compared with the issues like cost of living, educating your kids, uh, getting decent medical services, uh, getting your kids to various sporting facilities on a Saturday, uh, a republic was just a 10th order issue. Uh, and the um, and that, that was fundamentally the point. And, and the second point was that the uh, that the whole argument in favour of a republic was academic. I mean, the the factual position was that the that the facts were never debated in in that whole referendum, as you know. The uh, the practical position was that essentially the argument in favour was. That is an insult to our national pride that somebody from Britain is still our nominal ruler. I mean, that summarised the case. And that, that's nice for, you know, debating over dinner tables. Um, but it has no practical effect. I mean, the legal position is, as we saw in, uh, in, uh, in 1977, that when it comes to dismissing a prime minister, the power resides exclusively with the governor general. The real power. And that was made uh, very clear. Had, that was made very clear by the palace, when uh, the parliament, yes. after after the dismissal in seventy five, the the parliament, yes. the House of Representatives, resolved to ask the speaker to ask yes. the Queen to intervene and reverse yes. it. And yes. we got a very polite yes. letter. He got a very polite letter from the palace saying that the Queen is watching what is happening in Australia with great concern, but that under the terms of the Constitution, this is a power vested exclusively in the Governor-General, it would be improper for the Queen to intervene in this. So that was the very important thing. And the, the, other thing the other thing, of course, that we made was that uh, this is why it was very important that uh, the Governor-General was appointed and removable by the Queen because the Prime Minister would have to go to the Queen to remove the Governor-General. And, of course, she also set the standards in relation to that. Could I ask you one, one matter that, uh, that you draw from this? You were looking at uh, the reactions of politicians to the dismissal and to what it referred to, not the dismissal so much, but uh, the referendum, what it uh, indicated had been happening to the political parties. And you contrast Malcolm Turnbull with Mark Latham. And uh, I'm just wondering if you could uh, explain that again. Well, the, um, my, my observations are quite separate. Uh, Mark Latham uh, is a person about whom there are very, there are very definite views. Uh, and, and that's because of his personality. Put his personality to one side. Uh, in terms of his social analysis, uh, he's very good. 
the uh, he was the first the first politician to actually understand the political importance of the no referendum result. Uh, it's quite interesting uh, that in England, I presume there still is, uh, but certainly up until the 2010 anyway, there was an annual Menzies lecture in, in London of all places. And Mark Latham gave the 2002 Menzies lecture in London which is probably why the boy speech never got reported in Australia. But it was in that speech that that Mr. Latham talked about two nations. And essentially what he said was that uh, what you have in the inner suburbs is a situation in which people know more about somebody sitting on the end of a computer in New York on their night shift than what they know about their next door neighbour. That's how amortised the inner suburbs has got. And basically what he was saying was that that these people are psychologically totally mobile. That the uh, that if, for example, uh, life in Australia doesn't suit them, uh, they think they've either got the skills or the resources or, or to, to just move. And that's why he branded them tourists. He then compared the mindset in the inner suburbs with the outer suburbs. And he said, in the outer suburbs, uh, life is much more practical. If people have to deal with real daily issues. And out there, uh, the idea that you can simply pack up your bags and leave is just not an option. So in the outer suburbs, it's Australia whether you like it or whether you don't. Uh, and he said, and so what you see in the outer suburbs is greater connection with community, greater connection with family, out of practical necessity. And he described them as residents. And I, I, I thought, that, I read that in 2004, uh, because as you know, I was involved in the federal campaign in 2004. Uh, and I thought that for the coalition, uh, Mark Latham presented a real challenge. And that was because he had a good understanding of working class labour. Uh, now, as it turned out in 2004, uh, the party machine eventually was able to basically get him to adopt the positions of the party machine, which was all in the suburbs. Um, and I think that was a critical mistake for Labor, quite critical. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that was his view. And then you come to Malcolm Turnbull. Well, this was the man who, on the night of the referendum result, put it all down to Mr. Howard and basically said that he destroyed the reputation of the country. I mean, you, you know the speech better than I do. Uh, so that was in broke 1999. the heart of the nation. <laughs> the man yeah, who broke the heart of, of the nation. <laughs> so 99, 99, that's it. 2004, with, with John Howard still the leader of the Liberal Party, or, or 2000, whatever it was, suddenly there's Malcolm Turnbull, a Liberal politician. I mean, quite extraordinary. It was extraordinary that he took the seat, the seat of Wentworth, from a constitutional yes. monarchist. Yes, uh, and, yes, and, yes. Uh, and that was supported by yes. the, uh, the leaders, the people who control the New South Wales Party. Uh, and Very much and so. he, won the, he won the Breeze election. And uh, I remember 
there was even even a reflection of that among monarchists because the head of a minor monarchist organization decided to campaign for Malcolm Turnbull. Yes. And his argument, which I didn't think was at all plausible, was that if Mr. Latham got in, he would turn Australia into a republic, which seemed to be a ridiculous well, argument. Mark Latham never showed any interest in the Republic, no. and uh, he would have known, of course, that once you lose a referendum, the chances of ever winning that referendum again is pretty minimal. In fact, uh, at the time of the referendum, I did some research. I went through issues which had been put up in different referendums, and I found that on some occasions, almost uh, up to five times, the same issue had been put up to five times. Once the Australians say no, they always say no. They will, may well change their minds next time, but it's a, it's a dead issue if you lose a referendum in Australia. And I suspect that's going to be the case if they're silly enough to hold a second referendum on the Republic. I think they'll go down to a bigger defeat. In fact, uh, John Howard uh, has come to that conclusion that if there were to be a second referendum, it's likely to go down and go down to a bigger defeat. Um, David, look, there's no hindsight in this. Uh, you might recall at the time, I mean, the, the inner suburban class are arrogant uh, and that pervades, that pervades their attitudes across the whole set of cultural issues. Uh, but the arrogance was on display as, as early as 2004. I mean, as you know, the, the day after the result... Uh, those who supported the Republic were, were running around saying, well, it doesn't matter, it'll all happen within five years. Yes. Uh, or they were saying, um, it, it, well, basically, this this is all because everybody loves Queen Elizabeth, but the moment she's not there, well, it's all over Rover. Um, the, um, I mean, no evidence for any of this. Um, the, uh, the, the problem with, the risk with cultural issues from a political point of view is that they're generational. Uh, that is to say that, that they are the particular focus of a particular generation. And there is no guarantee that a cultural issue which sort of dominates the thinking of one generation will dominate the thinking of the next generation. So you don't think, you know, the, gender, said, you don't think the gender issues which seem to be dominating every day with, with even a, a, a minister, a chief minister of uh, Scotland losing her place because she decided to put men with penises into women's prisons. It seems to be such a silly issue at the, at the current time, but it's certainly become an issue and certainly not one where people follow science. Well, no, no, the, well, they don't. But, and there's a, I mean, this leads to a, a, a much more serious discussion. Uh, notwithstanding issues of generational, um, it also follows that if a change is made by one generation, there's no guarantee the next generation will reverse it. So for the sake of argument, let's say the Republic uh, referendum had been carried. There is no guarantee at all that the next generation, even if, even if they didn't have the slightest interest in it, would reverse it. When change, it's your point. When change is made, it's made. And so... The, so and, and this is the problem for people who, on any issue, uh, I mean, if you, you, you've spent your time in the trenches uh, 
defending basically the status quo one way or another. And the, the real challenge with that is that you've got to win every time. Because people wanting change can always come back. If they lose this time, there's always next time. Mm. But, if, but if you're defending status quo, once change happens, it happens. So you've got to win every time, uh, which is a really huge challenge. So uh, you come to uh, the issue of gender identity. And uh, as I said you know, in, in, in that essay, uh, gender identity represents a serious philosophical challenge because if you look, if, if you simply look at uh, at history, uh, gender identity is simply the latest manifestation of individualism. And uh, that is very difficult for people who support individualism because uh, they are then confronted with the proposition that a philosophy that which they fundamentally support has delivered an outcome which they don't support. And that, and that becomes a serious challenge, a, a serious intellectual challenge. And we've arrived at that right now. Yes, I, I mean, you, you make the very important point there that uh, I think uh, Mark Latham recognised rather quickly that the Labour Party had changed significantly. It was no longer a working class party. Uh, I think Kim Beasley's, yes. Kim Beasley's father famously said something about that. that he said yes. that when he was in the Labour Party, it contained the cream of the working class. But now, class, and yes. he was speaking some time ago, now it contains the dregs of the middle class. Now, that was highly dismissive, but it did reflect the fact that the Labour Party is no longer a working class party in the sense that it was most of its existence. And, the, and at the time, uh, there was a tendency uh, to look at Kim Senior's statement and just put it down as sort of colourful rhetoric. Uh, but presumably what he knew was you know, what, what has been recorded. The transformation of the composition of the Labour Party by occupation during the 1980s, by the 1980s, not from, by the 1980s, was quite dramatic. And there was research, there was research done by Labour supporters around this very issue. And a study was produced in which it demonstrated, I think by the 1980s, that uh, one, in three, one in three positions held on every key administrative body was held by somebody, uh, by a Labor Party member whose occupation was a manager. And the comparison was made between uh, what you might call lower middle class sort of occupations, uh, like you know, retail and all the rest of it. And fundamentally, I mean, their influence was virtually zero. I think the last, working, the last working class person under a Labour designation in the federal parliament was a DLP man who had been, I think, yeah. a boilermaker. Or a, boilermaker. Yes. But that, yeah, John Madigan. John Madigan. Yes, you, if you went through the occupations of most of the sitting members of the ALP, you'd find that they certainly, that they are more what you would think of as middle class. And in fact, an extraordinary number of them are also property investors. Well, the person who 
the, the Labour person who was very vocal on this topic was the late John Button. Mm. And on one occasion, he compared by occupation uh, the composition of the Parliamentary Labour Party at the end of the 70s with the composition of the Parliamentary Labour Party at the end of the 90s. And he made the point that the, the composition of the Federal Parliamentary Labour Party at the end of the 70s by occupation was broadly reflected in the first talk cabinet. I mean, at one point, I forget when it was, he actually made the point that, one, that if one, once upon a time, it would have been preposterous to think that a Labour Party would seek, would seek to be a representative party without a farmer, business, he ran through a whole series of occupations. He said, and that's precisely what the Labor Party does by the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, compare, you compare the first or cabinet, for example, with names we still know, Peter Walsh, farmer, John Kerrin, farmer. Uh, you, you, you get, there's a, there's a whole range of, of occupations. I mean, they, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, well, one thing they certainly weren't is they weren't all, all former ministerial advisers. Yes. But I, when I was a boy, the, the Labour Prime Minister had been an engine driver. Yes. A train driver. Yes. yes. Uh, and yeah. I think Curtin was an exception. He'd been a journalist, a work, but a working journalist. Uh, but well, uh, well, 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 this, yes. this is something, this, this change, completely different change in the composition of the party has also been reflected more recently among the Liberals, has it not, in terms of this oh. debate between liberalism and conservatism, which you rightly point out, John Howard patched up very elegantly. Oh, well, well very, very much so. And, um, and because of his length of time in the Liberal Party, and because uh, he's an intelligent man, and because he's an, a very effective politician, uh, he had the authority to carry it off. Mm. This is the broad church. But the minute, yes, the, the minute he retired, it all fell in a heap. Yes. You know, even the uh, Republican referendum, even the Republican referendum reflected that because once Keating yes. started on the Republic, he'd never shown any interest in it before he became Prime Minister, interestingly, but he saw the advantages. In fact, Hayden advised the Queen that uh, this would be something that uh, Keating would be pushing because it, uh, it yes. suited him, but he used it as a wedge to divide the Liberal Party and a large number of Liberal MPs, particularly influenced by the media, rather foolishly jumped onto the Republican bandwagon and Downer and then Howard had to they had to work out how to save the party, otherwise it would have been so divided they would have been defeated in the, the next election against Keating. So they, they, they developed this idea, well, let's hold a convention. We'll hold a convention, elected convention, the people will elect that convention, and then the convention will come up with a recommendation, and if they recommend a Republican model, we'll put that to a referendum. And that's what they offered, and it, it kept the party together. I think the challenge facing the Liberal, well, both sides in the 1990s, uh, was that, and we are seeing it now, that with the, with the end of communism, 
the political assumptions that had, had underpinned political structures post-war were all rendered redundant. And uh, if one, if if they had been businesses, and the and McKinsey's had been called in, then McKinsey's essentially would have said, uh, basically, reinvent yourselves, or start again. Do what Mr. Menzies did in the 1940s. Start again. Uh, but uh, nobody could afford to do that on either side because by then politics had already become a, a career, an industry. And so jobs were on the line. Uh, the Rod, Rod Cavalier, a former Labor State Minister, as you know, is, is a, a great communicator. Mm. Uh, talks about Labor's being an executive employment agency. <laughs> and he said the only time there's any serious disputes inside Labor is if one of, if one of the appointments doesn't get up. Well, I, I sent this essay to a person who knows the Liberal Party in New South Wales very, very well uh, and was, was active in the Liberal Party for many years. Uh, never stood for pre-selection as far as I know. Was never a member of a management committee as far as I know. Anyway, he responded to me and said, uh, it's not just Labor that's the executive employment agency. And then he started reciting what goes on in the Liberal Party in New South Wales. I mean, it, the, the problem with is, I mean, people wonder why people are so cynical about politics and about politicians. Um, the average person doesn't spend the time examining this, these sorts of issues the way you and I do. Hmm. But the average person's got great instincts. And they, they don't need to read about it. They grasp it quite intuitively. Yes. And we see that, don't we, in the co collapse, the complete collapse of the primary vote of both sides. Oh, Neither party was now, could now be even close to being a majority party, as they once were. And, this, this, and you see this particularly, I think, also in the Liberal Party, which was once the party of small business and professionals. That was the people that Menzies essentially rallied together when he formed the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party has turned its back on that. Well, it, you see, it's interesting. The, the transformation, if you look at the Liberal Party by occupation, uh, the change has been just as significant as it has been on the Labor side. You know, superficially, uh, not as obvious. But, but it, go, as you, you take your point, go through and identify the number of people, say, in the Federal Parliamentary Liberal Party now, who've actually, had, who've actually owned small businesses just as an example, and, and there'll be a few, but where? Uh, I, I mean, increasingly, uh, I mean, the precondition for becoming a politician on both sides now is, is to be a political apparatchik. So you go straight and from the university, or what, even while you're at the university, you become a political advisor. What, what advice you can give when you're that age is an interesting question. But from that, you then wait until you can obtain a safe seat. To get that, you get that not so much on merit, but on your loyalty to a particular power broker who will promote you into a safe seat. That's the whole process now. So we have lifelong career politicians who know nothing about the real world. 
Well, well, well from, as, an out, as an outsider, um, it appears to me, the problem appears to me to be even more serious than that. Uh, it, it seems to me that from the point of view of a power broker, the one prerequisite of the recruit is that either they can't think or they, or they will take orders. Mm, that's the important thing. You take that's orders. Or, or you can't think or both. Yes. And, and we see um, this even in the Liberal Party where there is freedom to go against the party line. They, they all supposedly have this freedom. Very few vote against the party line in the Parliament. Uh, it has got to the point in both parties, and both parties have got factions. They use different names and all the rest, but they've both got them. Uh, it's got to the point in, in both sides. Now that it's become a career... And now that uh, now, now that it's all about patronage, which Rod Cavalier eloquently says, uh, you've you've got to the point now where the so-called sub-factions function as a party in their own right. There's no loyalty to the primary brand at all. I mean, you take Scott Morrison's making himself the minister for everything. Uh, did he think for five seconds? about what damage that would do to the Liberal brand? Mm. Well, the answer, no is the answer to that. And, and it's done tremendous damage to the brand. I don't think it was as serious as some say, but it certainly was damaging. And it should have been made public. If he thought that were necessary, it should have been released. And we should have all known but, that. But, 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 think, but then keep going. Mm. And it goes against the um, principle of cabinet government, doesn't it, surely, to concentrate well, all portfolios in the first among equals. It is interesting. Um, as I said, I, I was talking to somebody who worked in Canberra a, a couple of years ago, and uh, their observation was that the way that Mr Morrison ran the government uh, was not cabinet government at all, and this person's view was the most centralised since Kevin Rudd. Mm. Um, and and that, that's how far they had drifted. But let's keep going with this business about brand. Uh, Mr Howard uh, then had, uh, went on television while all this was going on to promote his latest book. And somebody had called for Mr Morrison to stand down and retire. And uh, Mr Howard was asked whether he thought that should happen. He said, no, no, no. Uh, can't have a by-election in Cook, we might lose the seat. Now, I mean, that I'm, I'm not saying that's not factually accurate. Mm. And I'm not saying that's not a pragmatic response. But what does a statement like that do for the brand? It simply reinforces this whole idea that both of the parties are policy-free zones or value-free zones. And they've got to that point. Because in the case of the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party is known since the 1990s uh, with the end of communism, that the internal contradictions that have been able to be wallpapered over by the common enemy uh, were still there. And they had to keep wallpapering them over, hence broad church. So the way you do it is you, first of all, you, you basically find a way of saying there are no contradictions at all. So that's the first move. So you say conservatism and liberalism can coexist. 
And in order to do that, you have a definition of conservatism that is so narrow and so limited that fundamentally it could coexist with any, any other school of thought except communism. Uh, then the, um, then you, you then proceed from that. And so what you then do is every issue becomes a transaction. So from there on, you are constantly simply trying to keep these two competing ideas in, in under the one tent to use John Howard's word. To, what do you mean so by transaction? Uh, what do you mean by well, transaction? Well, for example, well, well fundamentally, you, you take a view on one policy which you think will uh, satisfy one group of supporters. Then you take a view on another policy that will satisfy another group of supporters. Or you actually try, you actually try to take a view that will satisfy both groups of supporters. And all of your time spent simply working out not the principles, not the values, but rather what is the practical consequence of this on group X or this on group Y. And that's why the Liberal Party is in the, in the trouble it's got now. So you're not uh, governing in the best interest, as you believe it, of the nation in accordance with your principles. You're governing in the hope that this will collect your votes to keep you in office. Well, well, you know the old cliche: a broad church is no church. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's the cliche, and so that's where you end up, um, because you don't consistently apply a set of principles or values. You simply end up with a vacuum. Well, if the if we uh, have and, a situation, if we have a situation where the two principal parties are no longer representing what they were formed for, and they've become transactional parties rather than parties governing on the basis of the principle that they believe this is in the bent of the country, we have a particular problem, and that is that the electoral system is designed to keep those two parties there in Parliament, is it not? Preferential voting, for example, compulsory voting, and uh, the massive funding, public funding of existing politicians, oh. all give an enormous... And I, and I think improper advantage against the possibility of any new parties emerging. Oh, it's, it's, the interest is true. Uh, I mean, you had a case here in Victoria in the state election. Um, a party emerged called the Victorians Party. And, and from all accounts, uh, it, it was well-resourced. About six weeks out or maybe even less from the election, it suddenly folded its tent and went home. Now, by then, um, it said it had candidates to nominate for every lower house seat in Victoria, that is to say 88 candidates. And it just folded its tent and went home. And the speculation is that, the, um, that they had thought that they could comply with Victoria's financing laws, electoral financing laws, and then discovered that they couldn't. So, so that, that, I mean, this is a case in point. We, we have a situation now in Victoria, and I think now in Queensland, in which the taxpayer not only finances election campaigns, it funds the parties. Now, could you imagine um, if BHP said, um, oh, you know, we're we're losing customers, we want the federal government to fund head office. 
but, but, but this, is, this is the equivalent we've got in Victoria, and it's, it's all justified in the name of uh, basically uh, militating against corruption. This is, this is the public interest argument that, that's advanced. They're, do, they're, doing all, they're doing all of this um, simply militates against bribery, basically. Yes. And um, wasn't it interesting but, in the last parliament that the only time that the Morrison government introduced legislation for voter identification, which we desperately need, I think, the, the only yes. time they did that was when uh, Pauline Hanson refused, she, she insisted that she would not be cooperating with the government in relation to their legislation unless they introduced a bill. And when it was introduced, the Labour Party said, well, this will, this will be terribly discriminatory to, to, oh, the, uh, to the Indigenous people, as though the Indigenous people yes. don't drive, as though they don't have driver's <laughs> licences, as though they don't have Medibank. A completely ridiculous <laughs> argument, a racist argument, but one to excuse the fact that probably the Labour Party is better at it. After all, the electoral laws were changed under Bob Hawke to make it easier to vote. And when they said easier to vote, it wasn't that we were having difficulty in voting. We know what they mean when they said easier to vote? Uh, both the major parties know to the nth degree the characteristics of people who vote for them, David. And that's what it's all about. Mm. But you will know they've got it broken down by age, you know, country, of, country of origin, occupation, you name it. They, they know to the nth degree. And uh, any decision... Uh, any decision that affects their prospects of keeping their job is informed by their perception of the characteristics of people who support them and people who support their competitors. Do you see either party becoming a real party again? In the sense, I think, for example, in, in the United States, the Republican Party, I think, is still a real party. And I think the reason why it's still a real party is the fact that primaries are used that the, the people who run the Republican Party can't control who gets nominated. These are done in primaries, which takes away the concept of the pre-selection which the party runs away from them, and the primary is more likely to resist somebody. And that's why, obviously, Donald, Donald Trump became the candidate. He was, he was detested by the Republican establishment, but he became the candidate in 2016, very much against their wishes? Uh, I think, I, 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 first of all, I think that what you observe um, is a characteristic of much more significant differences. Uh, I came to the view uh, oh, many years ago now that, uh, the that the Australian Parliament is the the most dominated by political parties of pretty well uh, any parliament uh, in what we would describe as the West, and I include the UK. And I include the UK in that. What led me that was uh, going back now. I think to the, the Blair era. Uh, there was an education bill presented to the British Parliament, and I think from memory it was. 50 or 60 government MPs crossed the floor. So government MPs crossed the floor. 
That would never happen in Australia. Well, part of the reason, of course, is the caucus rule. The Labor Party has a caucus rule which threatens you with expulsion and loss of pre-selection if you vote against the government. Oh, it's, it's, no, it starts well before then. Mm. Uh, if we go back to Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Th and Fraser, I think it was Gough Whitlam who introduced the notion of cabinet solidarity. I, I could stand correct as well. I think it was Whitlam, Mr Whitlam. And so basically what that meant was that regardless of whether one... Basically, the, the proposition is you only get one bite at the cherry. So if, if, there's, if there's a discussion in Cabinet, you've had your bite at the cherry. And you're talking about the party and, caucus, so that if you... The, if the Cabinet comes to a decision, they must go to the caucus with that decision. Yes. Which is outrageous. And, and all... And, and all vote for mm. the decision. Yes. So so then you get this thing, uh, and it, this was never reversed. So then you go the next step. The next step then is that all members of the ministry are obliged to support the decisions of the government. And then, so, you, increase, so then you increase the size of the ministry so that in some, in some parliaments, half the, half the government MPs are some, some, some sort of minister. Well, you don't even need to do it, you see, because by this, the moment you go to that, you've then got people in the outer ministry who haven't had their bite at the cherry, mm. who nevertheless are locked in. Then you extend that to the parliamentary secretaries. So you, went, you end up in a situation where by the time you, you're, you're getting to the caucus, you can have a quarter to, the, to, the, to a third of the vote locked in. Yes. In fact, your, your reference to the Australian Parliament as being the Parliament of Western countries, particularly uh, Anglosphere countries, as being the one most dominated by the political parties, is demonstrated by the disgraceful charade, the fourth-rate theatre, which is Question Time. In London, at Westminster, the, 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 the speaker asks, are there any questions? And people stand and he selects from one side and then the other side, but he selects. In Canberra, the speaker receives from the whips the list. He, he, he's like a, as though he's living under a dictatorship. He's got a list of people. He knows who to call. And of course, there they are. The, the questions from the government to the from government MPs to the government are already known by the ministers, and they have the hide to say to refer to the question without notice. And of course, the minister has complete <laughs> notice. It is it is such well, fourth-rate theatre that they should close it down. Well, see, but see, you can put the UK. You, you would know this better than I. But I think I'm right in saying that in the United Kingdom. Not all members of the Commons are full-time politicians. That's true, yes. Because you can. Also, London is a is a working city, unlike Canberra. Yes. So, but but the important thing is they're not full-time politicians. Mm. So, in other words, it's not a profession in the way we describe a profession here. Uh, because they're not full-time politicians, I mean, the truth is they're more independent. Mm. Some of them have got other 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 sources of income. Yes. And, and you're right to say that the parties don't dominate. There was a time, for example, when Blair would have lost a vote in relation to what was going on in Iraq. He would have lost the vote. Yes. Uh, but, but what he did was he relied on conservative votes to win that yes. in the Commons and he sailed on. But that would never happen in Canberra. 
Well, when, so then, then you go to the states. Um, well, yours and my, as you and I define a political party, at a national level, uh, in the United States, there are not political parties. You will notice that it, it is the Republican National Committee. Mm. It is the Democrat National Committee. In the United States, as you know, when it comes to the presidential nomination, it's actually the nominee who writes the platform. I mean, that's what the Great Gathering's all about. Yes. It's all, it's all, it's all about the promises that were made to get the votes, which are then reflected in, in the platform. Mm. Uh, the, uh, it's arguable in the states that political action committees uh, have at least as much influence as what we, you and I might describe as party machines. Yes. And it, it's interesting on that front that uh, recently, as you, as you know, there was this brouhaha amongst the the Republicans over, over the, the speakership for the House of Representatives. And there were 20 people who, who basically dug in their heels. Well, what was interesting about that for me was that um, there was an article in one US paper, and this, uh, this article was bemoaning the fact that the problem was with these 20 was that they were not beholden to a political action committee. That in fact, that their whole financial base depended on small donations. And therefore, they, could, they couldn't be bullied. Mm. That, I mean, that's, that's some, that sums it up. The, uh, in the, leaving aside the president, you look in the United States at the extent to which they cross the floor. I mean, you take this Democrat senator for West Virginia, for example. I mean, by our standards, what's his name, Minchin or some name like that? By our standards, he's holding the Democrat Party to ransom every day of the week. Yes. And of course, uh, the Democrats have changed to an extent, haven't they? Once upon a time, they were more inclined to break ranks and vote with the Republicans. And uh, hopefully we'll go back to that. But the Democrats have become a very much a, a far left party or party, a party of far left alliances. But there are... Well, well fundamentally... Sorry, I mean, basically, I mean, the proposition I'm putting about inner suburbs and outer suburbs, uh, I believe you can apply in the Western world generally, or in Anglo-Saxon countries generally. And you like the word, of, I, I, uh, you like that word introduced by Christopher Lash, which I used in a book I wrote. Christopher Lash refers to the elites. And I, I in 2004, yes. I wrote a book called Twilight of the Elites because I foolishly thought that the victory of John Howard was a diminution of the influence of the elites. Well, you see, and, well, and it's, I mean, the, there, there is a new ruling class and it is not based on the landed gentry. Hmm. It, 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 is, it is based on the inner suburbs. It's based on university degrees. Yeah, and, and amongst the university degrees, you know, there, there are wealthy people, but um, but fund fundamentally, it, it's it's what I call the certified class. People, you know, people with university degrees living in in the inner suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, and the and you look at uh, you look at what's happening in the states. I mean, what's happening is that 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 historic Democrat membership 
which was reflected around, you know, I'm, you know, I'm back in the 60s now, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Pat Moynihan, Scoop Jackson. Uh, the, uh, they, um, they, they just don't exist. I mean, there's actually an argument uh, that the person who closely represents that mindset is actually Joe Biden. Well, he was a segregationist, and, and wasn't he? When he first came in, he was part of, or allied with the Dixiecrats, the Southern segregationists, who were, I mean, they were the successors yes. to the slave-owning part of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Well, 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 you see, he, he, I mean, you see now, I mean, he, he is the one who feels a, a level of obligation to unions. And, and you can see you can see that now. I mean, it's it's not he's not he's not issuing media releases, but you can see it. Mm. Um, but the but fundamentally, I mean, he's a dinosaur. Now, I'm not talking about his competence at large or his policies at large or any, anything of that sort. Uh, but the um, but again, the it, it is it, it's it's all in a suburbs. I mean, the, the way it's reflected in the states is that you look at Trump's base. It's not New York. It's not Washington. Certainly it's not, not Washington. California. I think I think uh, the Democrats get over ninety percent of the vote in Washington D.C. Well, it's like that's that's where it's like if, yes, that's where if there is a trial for some reason that the Department of Justice decides for political reasons, they'll they'll do it. They'll try to do it with a jury based in Washington D.C. Well, it's Australia's the same. Canberra's got three federal seats that are all Labor. Mm. It's exactly the same. Uh, you know, the, the, the Greens um, the Greens share the balance of power more often than not in the ACT Assembly. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can run a comparison between Washington and Canberra yes. politically. It's all, it's, uh, the, uh, it was a mistake, wasn't it, to establish that as the capital? They should have made Adelaide or Brisbane or Perth the capital, I think. Well... Well, 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 yes, well, well, certainly an existing population centre. Mm. Certainly not something road. new and certainly not, and something on the coast, I think, is a, would, would have been very important. But this is a very important essay. It's published by uh, the Institute of Public Affairs, IPA, but you've also yes. got it on your website. What is your website again, please? www.cpi-strategic, charliepercyindiastrategic.com.au. So just go to cpi-strategic.com.au and you'll find it there. Do you think there is a solution to all this? David, people find this strange. My interest is not politics. I know how the CV reads. My interest is culture. And from my point of view, politics is simply a tool to, to implement cultural values. Is it a tool to and achieve I, good government? I, I, I mean, well, I think you can have good, well, well, maybe. I mean, I, if it's, if, if it's all about good government, well, I mean, there are some dictatorships that a good government. So, I mean, look at Singapore. And look at Singapore under Lee Kuan Yew. 
I mean, a, a notional democracy. But democracy surely a good government with, with a liberal, uh, with, with freedom. Well, look at Singapore. They've got freedom. Yes. Uh, he was incorrupt there, wasn't he? Oh, oh a great man. Yes. Uh, a great man. How, it, how often is see, that sort of authoritarian ruler oh, incorrupt? This, this, this is the problem. Uh, I mean, there's another example of him is the, the late... Uh, Emir of Oman, uh, another great man. Uh, the, um, but I mean, the, the weakness, well, against a philosophical discussion, um, and this is, you know, I'm back to my liberal conservative. Uh, if you believe that human beings are capable of being perfect, then um, you can support the sort of system, say, that that was in Singapore, on the basis that, to answer your question, that you will get people who will come to the fore who are perfect. But I believe that nobody's perfect. And so it, that, that's one of my arguments against dictatorships, that it's your point that, in fact, you can't guarantee, you can't guarantee perfection at all. In fact, I, I take the opposite view. You can guarantee imperfection. Mm. Uh, and so that becomes quite a practical question when you talk about forms of government. Uh, so, so the answer to your question is, uh, yes, the, um, I, I, I fall on the side of democracy, uh, but the, um, is for the me, population, in, in the, is, is the general population, is, it, is that the core of the people? Something, a, a civic virtue on which can be relied? For example, if we were to, have a constitutional review, a constitutional convention, and we came to the conclusion that we should perhaps follow more the Swiss model and allow a greater sovereignty in the people in that they could initiate yes. referendums, there yes. could be recalls and so on. Would, would that yes. improve the structure? Would that improve the quality of government oh. maintaining the freedom of the people? Well, it, it, would, improve, it would improve the representative nature of decisions that were made. I can't talk about quality of government. You see, the, the, the question's this. Um, you know, when banks can tell governments, we are not going to lend money because we don't like what they do, how does that fit with democracy? As you know and I know, this, this, is, where, this is where we have arrived. Hmm. Uh, so, so how, how, how does that fit with anybody's notion of democracy at all? Uh, then when, when you have cultural values which basically erase the concepts of truth and erase the concepts of right and wrong, and that's, that's, where, that's where Rousseau has taken us. Uh, how does democracy address that? I mean, my interest is culture. So if you go back to your question, uh, as I said, I'm a conservative. Uh, I, I don't think conservatism has had any serious influence over policymaking for a long time. Uh, the, but if you said to me, where would you start? Uh, I wouldn't start with a political party, 
I'd start with a conservative think tank. Because in the end, uh, John Maynard Keynes made a quite profound observation in his famous book on economics. It was in the last chapter. Uh, he said, the power of vested interest is vastly exaggerated when compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas. And, and we are living to see it. That's a yeah, wonderful, we are living to see. That's a wonderful line. Bef yes. Before you go, could you remind us again where we can read, where people can read your paper? What is the name of your site? cpistrategic.com.au well, you've certainly, you've certainly put a very serious issue before the Australian people. And I hope it's widely read. It should be widely read because it is an issue which should be considered by all serious thinking Australians who are thinking about the future of the country. And uh, I, I think that you, you saw that so early and you performed so well and you, what you've done in your career, you've you've chosen in many ways, I think, the right subjects. You've, when you've come out and issued a view, for example, that on the free trade agreement with China, where you saw through what the politicians and big business didn't see through, or if they did, were hiding, and the same in relation to the Republic campaign. Yes, yes. So thank yes. you once again. And do you have some final advice before we close? No, no, not, 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 not at all, David. I, I, I mean, my, my view is if both of the major parties, if neither of the major parties refuses to make a clear choice between either the inner suburbs or the outer suburbs and continue to think that somehow they can pander to both or continue to, when the chips are down, side constantly with one, namely the inner suburbs, then uh, neither of them, uh, neither of them will play a long-term role in Australia's future. Well, that is a warning, and thank you very much for that. It's a wonderful piece, and it must be read. It must be widely read, and it will be obtained through the Institute for Public Affairs, but also on your website, which we'll put up again. Yes, David. Yes. And uh, uh, cpistrategic.com.au. Yes. Thank you. cpistrategic.com.au. Well, thank you very much. This is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and we're on ADH-TV, the new and exciting uh, platform which offers such, I think, very stimulating views as yours, Rick. Thank you.